the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with Justin Boggy. He serves as Senior Policy Analyst in Fiscal Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about uh, three proposals that have come up in the Senate. Not the first time this has happened in Washington, but uh, this time around, following the longest government shutdown, about 35 days, three bills have been introduced that would propose auto-continuing resolutions that would provide relief from Members of Congress having to do their jobs. Well, we'll talk about the up and the downsides of such uh, proposals and what the courts have said uh, previously. We're also going to talk with Scott Kadersha. He's the author of Ready or Not, and that's spelled with a K-N-O-T. He is a family and uh, marriage counselor, premarital counselor. Twelve conversations every couple needs to have before marriage. He'll join us uh, later in the five o'clock hour as well. First, some of the developing news stories of the day. Uh, President Trump held his first campaign rally Monday night in El Paso, Texas. Meanwhile, Beto O'Rourke led a border wall protest about a half mile away to counter the president's rally. Trump's event was held at the El Paso County Coliseum in the town that sits along the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, Trump did not mention the nearby rally, but brought up O'Rourke, the young man with a great name who challenged us, the president said, in a reference to the three-term congressman whose hometown is El Paso. O'Rourke said El Paso is one one of the safest cities in America, safe not because of the wall, but in spite of walls. And most of uh, his speech uh, during his counter event was disparaging the value and purpose of walls. The president announced his rally last week during his second State of the Union address in which he alleged El Paso is now one of the nation's safest cities because of a powerful barrier that was put in place. Now, he was quoting some uh, leaders in El Paso. However, that has been disputed by his critics. Con- uh, congressional negotiators rather revealed on Monday evening that they've reached an agreement in principle on border security funding that includes more than one point three billion dollars for physical barriers along the U.S.-Mexico border. And we'll talk in more detail about that in a few moments. But sources say the one point three billion can be used only for new construction that would cover approximately 55 miles of border territory in the Rio Grande Valley. Lawmakers have until 11.59 p.m. Friday, and that's Eastern time, to get the agreement through both houses of Congress signed by the president before several cabinet-level departments shut down and hundreds of federal workers, hundreds of thousands of federal workers, are furloughed in what could be the second partial government shutdown this year. Meanwhile, uh, U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez lashed out at President Donald Trump on Monday, excuse me, after he ridiculed the freshman lawmaker's controversial Green New Deal, comparing it to a high school term paper during a rally in El Paso. Ocasio-Cortez scoffed at the president's evocation of uh, literary aptitude, retorting, ah, yes, a man who can even read briefings written in full sentences is providing literary criticism of a House resolution, end quote. She then quoted a Washington Post article 
article which claimed the uh, reading uh, that reading the intelligence book is not Trump's preferred style of learning, according to a person with knowledge of the situation. Trump has uh, derided the Green New Deal, an economic stimulus concept designed to fight income inequality and climate change as a massive government takeover. Uh, That would destroy the incredible economic gains that have been made. The U.S. has made under his administration. And the president has called for um, Governor Northam, that uh, controversy, which uh, he calls pretty bad, stopping short of demanding his resignation. In an exclusive interview, the uh, Ingram uh, uh, angle, the president sounded a note of pity for the pretty sad controversy surrounding embattled Virginia Democratic Governor Ralph Northam, but stopped short of calling for that resignation. His comments came as the clamor for the resignation of the Virginia top uh, uh, Two politicians seem to die down on Monday with some black community leaders forgiving Northam over the blackface photograph in his medical school yearbook page and calling for a fair hearing for Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax on the sexual assault allegations against him. Meanwhile, Northam has suggested that the state's Democratic Attorney General Mark Herring should consider stepping aside because he admitted to dressing in blackface in college. I'm not sure how that standard is anything other than double, but that's what he's calling for. At a press conference earlier this month, Northam acknowledged that he had darkened his face when he dressed as singer Michael Jackson as part of a talent contest that same year. Uh, And then asked, um, rather when asked, if he still was able to perform the moonwalk in a question that was not funny in the context, Jackson's signature dance move, Northam paused to look at the space next to him, as if he was about to attempt the move before his wife Pamela said it was inappropriate circumstances. I felt sorry for his wife. His wife uh, saved him, Trump told host Laura Ingram. He was going to try to imitate Michael Jackson with a moonwalk. Nobody can imitate Michael Jackson with a moonwalk. It was a pretty bad situation. Of course, whether or not he could do it well was not the issue. Well, according to The Hill, eight immigrant families separated under the Trump administration's immigration policies filed claims on Monday for millions of dollars in damages for what a lawyer called inexplicable cruelty that left lasting damage. Left unmentioned is the cruelty those heads of families recklessly um, engaged in by bringing their children by illegal Uh, immigration means. The Washington Post reports that Representative Ocasio-Cortez is pushing for a debate on the substance of her Green New Deal resolution after her staff distributed an erroneous fact sheet regarding the proposal, leading to confusion over a plan supported by many of the Democratic Party's leading candidates for president. But is it actually confusion or is it, as Gary Bauer more reasonably suggests, given events of the last two days, damage control? Strict voter ID laws do not suppress turnout. A new paper finds, regardless of sex, race, Hispanic identity, or party affiliation. In total, 10 states, ranging from Georgia to Wisconsin, require voters to show ID in order to vote. The new research from an economics professor at the University of Bologna and another at Harvard Business School indicates that strict voting laws of the type implemented in those 10 states do not have a statistically significant effect on voter turnout. The Washington Free Beacon uh, had carried the story and a contentious leadership or rather si- rather citizenship question that's being included in the 2020 census won't be removed despite a lawsuit against it. The Epic Times says the legal victory for the Trump administration came the 8th of February when Judge Dabney Friedrich of the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia threw out the application for a preliminary injunction filed by the Electronic Privacy Information Center. And a new investigative piece by the Houston Chronicle and San Antonio Express News has revealed 
an alleged 20-year-long sex scandal within the leadership of several Southern Baptist churches. According to the investigation, about 380 leaders and volunteers within the church have been accused of sexual misconduct. Uh, And this is uh, the one-year anniversary, by the way, of the Parkland School shooting. On this day in 1999, the Senate voted to acquit President Bill Clinton of perjury and obstruction of justice. And on this day in 1924, George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue premiered in New York, one of my favorite pieces. And on this day in 1809, Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States, was born in a log cabin in Hardin, now LaRue County, Kentucky. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, George Washington was lauded as first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. In the words of Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee. But even our nation's first president couldn't prevail over the desire for a three-day weekend. After all, there are sales to be had. Well, Washington's birthday, which falls on February 22nd, was celebrated for decades on the actual day. But then, according to the History Channel's website... The holiday became popularly known as President's Day after it was moved as part of the 1971 Uniform Monday Holiday Act, an attempt to create more three-day weekends for the nation's workers. Well, the results, our first president, as well as President um, Abraham Lincoln, whose birthday falls on this day, are simply swallowed up in the name of President's Day, which the History Channel notes is now popularly viewed as a day to celebrate all U.S. presidents past and present. Well, that is, simply put, Well, kind of ridiculous. If we're seriously expected to put Washington on par with the scandal-ridden, well, Harding, for example, or place the great emancipator on the same level as James Buchanan, whose inability to deal with the slavery question helped hurdle the nation onto the brink of war, then that, again, seems ridiculous. Yes, all Americans should have at least a passing acquaintance with all 45 occupants of the Oval Office. But only a few deserve to be celebrated. Head and shoulders above the rest are Washington, who was indispensable to the creation of the Union, and Lincoln, who saved it. Now, Lincoln's role in steering the country through the Civil War and in ending the scourge of slavery are well known, and rightfully so. My family was certainly directly impacted by that bit of history. But we sometimes forget that it was, in large measure, his deep understanding of the Constitution that enabled him to rise to such greatness at the moment of crisis. Take his view of the judiciary's role in our structure of government. Lincoln, of course, deplored the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in the, ni- in the 1857 Dred Scott decision. I deplore it as well. It denied full citizenship rights to African-Americans, but in expressing his opposition, he affirmed the court's role as a co-equal branch of government, saying the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions and affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having, to that extent, practically resigned their government into the hands of of that imminent tribunal. Now, we've done it since. I would say Roe versus Wade being the most recent example that comes to mind. How can we learn from this day? Well, in a speech marking the bicentennial of Lincoln's birth, former U.S. Attorney General Edwin Meese observed, and I quote, I believe, following Lincoln's example, that the Congress can be much more active and much more assertive in its role in relation to the judiciary. There are a number of ways in which this can happen. The Senate can more carefully fulfill its role in the selection of federal judges. We should also, at the time when some politicians openly embrace socialism, remember Lincoln's thoughts on liberty, saying, I believe each individual is naturally entitled 
to do as he pleases with himself and the fruit of his labor, so far as it in no wise interferes with any other man's rights, and that the general government, upon principle, has no right to interfere with anything other than that general class of things that does concern the whole, end quote. Well, there's another thing we can learn from Lincoln today, according to Edwin Meese, the importance of national unity. Lincoln was compelled to unity by the nation, uh, unify rather the nation by force of arms. And he also sought to unify the people themselves emotionally by patience, compassion and persuasion. I would suggest that today we must unify the nation by the force of our ideas, by the validity of our principles and by the persuasiveness of our rhetoric. Well, all of that has essentially gone out the window, but one can be hopeful. When President Ronald Reagan called America a shining city on a hill, he echoed Abraham Lincoln, my dream is of a place and time where Americans will once again be seen as the the last best hope on earth. May it happen. May it always be our dream as well. Today is the birthday of President Abraham Lincoln. While Republican and Democratic lawmakers in Washington reached a tentative deal today, or rather Monday, to avoid another government shutdown, it's a pact that includes only one quarter of the president's requested funding for a border wall. The agreement expected to include $1.4 billion in appropriations for the wall, far short of the $5.7 billion the president had demanded in the past, according to a senior congressional aide speaking to The Post. Um, It would uh, fund the government until September 30th, the end of the current fiscal year. We reached an agreement, said Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman Richard Shelby, in principle. So there is that caveat. We've reached a deal in principle. Noting that the deadline was uh, is this Friday, he added the specter of another shutdown this uh, close. What brought us back together, I thought tonight, was we didn't want that to happen, end quote. Well, the deal would allow 55 miles of new fencing on the border. Note the use of the word fencing as opposed to any other offensive word, uh, which would be constructed out of existing materials such as metal slats. The fencing, which would uh, be constructed in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, is far less than the 215 miles that the president demanded during the last government shutdown. So 55 miles funded, 215 miles requested. The specifics of the deal are still somewhat sketchy, but staffs are just working out the details, we were told in the House Appropriations Committee. Uh, Trump must sign off on any agreement to avoid the second shutdown in the past month. The first one lasted about 35 days from December 22nd to January 25th. Uh, Chairman Shelby was confident the White House would back the deal. We believe from our dealings with them and the latitude they've given us, they will support it. We certainly hope so, he said. Talks between the parties crashed over the weekend, in part because Democrats sought to limit the number of immigrant detentions by federal authorities. They yielded ground on that on Monday, dropping the proposal to cap at 16,500, the number of undocumented detainees caught in um, areas away from the border. In exchange, the agreement curbed funding for ICE detainees detention beds, which Democrats said would mean the agency would detain fewer people. The President Trump warned last night that lowering the detention space would mean cutting loose dangerous criminals into the country, putting a question mark as to whether he will approve it. Let me state very clearly to those pushing this ridiculous and radical agenda, I will never sign a bill that forces the mass release of violent criminals into our country, he said during the campaign rally in Texas on Monday night. Well, the president was speaking at El Paso County Coliseum, where he was greeted enthusiastically by a crowd of more than 6,500. They said that progress is being made with the um, committee, Trump said, of the uh, talks that were taking place on Capitol Hill, even as he spoke. Just so you know, we're building the wall anyway. 
Trump also faced a backlash from local leaders in El Paso since his claim that the city once had extremely high rates of violent crime and was one of the most dangerous cities before a wall was built there. FBI statistics show that violent crime spiked in El Paso in 93, but dropped dramatically by 60 percent in 2006, two years before the wall was constructed. Crime rates have stayed relatively flat since then. But the president stood by his statement that walls have made an impact there. Uh, they're full of um, Well, I won't say what he said they are full of when they say it hasn't made a big difference about the mayor of El Paso and others who criticized his comments. The president focused his rally on the 2020 campaign with an update of his build the wall pledge instead showcasing banners that read finish the wall. Today, we started a big, beautiful wall right in Rio Grande, right smack on the Rio Grande, the president declared. So it it appears at this point that the shutdown has been averted. But until the president signs on. We don't actually uh, we don't actually know. So we'll just have to wait and see if the big, beautiful wall is going to be built. Former Vice President Joe Biden, Vermont Senator uh, Bernie Sanders, neither of whom has declared his candidacy for president yet, are the leaders of the pack in the race for the 2020 Democratic nomination, according to results of a new poll. A morning consult survey released today of Democrats nationwide and in the first four primary and caucus states also suggests that two declared candidates, Senators uh, Kamala Harris of California and Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, are third and fourth at this uh, very early point in the hunt for the Democratic nominee. The findings similar to recent polls from other organizations indicate that a year out from the start of the primaries, name recognition heavily influenced the results. There's not much big news there. That's generally the case. Morning Consult interviewed about 11,627 registered voters and all Democrats who indicated they may vote in the Democrat primary or caucus in their state. Uh, The firm said it will release updated results each week going forward. Well, according to the results, Biden is at 29 percent among Democrats nationwide. The former vice president is seriously considering running in 2020. So is Uh, Bernie Sanders, who stands at 22 percent in the survey, the independent senator from Vermont, battled eventual nominee uh, Hillary Clinton throughout the 2016 primaries. And it will be interesting. Will he need to become a Democrat in order to uh, uh, to win that uh, nomination or not? That's one of the things that uh, hindered him the first time around. Uh, Kamala Harris polled at 13 percent with Warren at 8 percent. Former Representative Beto O'Rourke of Texas, who's considering a White House run, stands at 7 percent with declared candidates Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey at 5 percent. Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota at um, 3 percent. None of the 12 other candidates or potential uh, contenders listed in the survey uh, topped 2 percent. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Justin Boggy. He serves as Senior Policy Analyst in Fiscal Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about uh, proposal uh, proposals to... Um, establish auto continuing resolutions. That means Congress wouldn't have to bother with doing its job. They just would simply kick in uh, so that there would be no future government shutdowns. And while after the longest government shutdown in our nation's history, it might sound like a great idea, there is another side to that story. We'll talk with Justin Boggy about that. We'll also talk with Scott Kadersha, who he is the author of Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. It's a great volume to help you think through, am I ready? Do I understand what the purpose from a biblical perspective marriage is? That was very awkwardly put, but I think you get the idea. 
Uh, am I ready for that? Am I willing to make the kinds of adjustments? Uh, can I anticipate some of the challenges we will face and so on? So we'll talk with Scott Kadersha, uh, who I believe is a Ph.D., but uh, we'll talk with him about that later in the five o'clock hour as well. Well, today is Academic Freedom Day, also known as Darwin Day. And for those who are concerned about whether or not academic freedom is a pipe dream, there are resolutions that traditionally are introduced on this day for that reason. It's a a valuable option for um, citizen activists. Well, Charles Darwin affirmed the need to continue scientific questions from a balanced perspective. As he famously wrote, and I quote, a fair result can be obtained only by fully stating and balancing the facts and arguments on both sides of each question. Well, it's sad, um, a pretty sad irony that his modern day followers have largely disregarded that advice, insisting that students learn only one side of the evidence about evolution and nothing about uh, questions that have been raised. Well, with this in mind, Darwin's birthday, a.k.a. Darwin Day, which is today, is celebrated as Academic Freedom Day. Are teachers and students in your state encouraging, encouraged rather to evaluate and analyze in a balanced and objective way the evidence about life's origins and diversity? Sadly, too often textbooks present a dogmatic one-sided view. What can you do to promote critical thinking and scientific inquiry in evolution instruction? Well, You may already know about academic freedom bills, such as those passed in Louisiana in 2008, Tennessee in 2012. These laws provide freedom for teachers to discuss the scientific controversy over evolution and other debates in science in an objective manner while adhering to the state's curriculum. That certainly would seem to be respectful of what Darwin said should be the scientific uh, model. But since 2017, states have been able to opt for an alternative academic freedom resolution, which is simply statements of legislative support. Both are valuable in advancing the cause of freedom to teach and to learn. So if you um, are interested in balancing what's being taught in a way that is uh, does not conflict with what the state requires, these academic freedom resolutions are certainly worthy of consideration. Well, Mexico's most notorious drug kingpin, Joaquim El Chapo Guzman, um, will spend the rest of his life behind bars after being found guilty on all 10 counts today at the conclusion of the three-month trial that detailed grisly killings, a bizarre escape, and drugs hidden in jalapeno cans. The jury of 12 people announced their decision at a federal courthouse in Brooklyn, New York, on the sixth day of deliberations, affirming Guzman was the leader of the Sinaloa cartel and conspired to commit murder. Guzman is 61. He entered the courtroom wearing a charcoal suit just before 12.30 p.m. He uh, stared at the jurors and remained motionless as the judge uh, read the verdict before the jury was discharged. Guzman briefly uh, looked at his uh, beauty queen wife uh, and blew her a kiss before being removed from the room. Um, She also appeared to not react to the jury's verdict, according to those present. I am pleased with the department has brought Joaquim Guzman El Chapo to justice by securing a conviction against this drug pin who was a principal leader of the Sinaloa cartel, acting Attorney General Whitaker said in a statement, as was clear to the jury, Guzman's uh, massive multi-billion dollar criminal enterprise, which, by the way, continues, was responsible for flooding the streets of the United States with hundreds of tons of cocaine, as well as enormous quantities of other dangerous drugs such as heroin and methamphetamine. Guzman's defense team released a statement saying they were obviously disappointed with the verdict, and I have no doubt they will... Uh, appeal that decision. And the declaration was made that this is a prison he will not escape from.
So El Chapo has been found guilty and has been given a life sentence. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced today that the Senate will vote on the Green New Deal resolution introduced last week by a coalition of progressive lawmakers vowing to entirely erase greenhouse gas emissions within 10 years with technology that's yet to be developed, while simultaneously creating millions of jobs in a government-subsidized green energy sector. Uh, McConnell said during a Monday press conference, I've noted with great interest the Green New Deal, and we're going to be voting on that in the Senate. Give everybody an opportunity to go on record and see how they feel about the Green New Deal, which, by the way, is a resolution. It's not a law to be passed. The resolution, which was introduced by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey of uh, Massachusetts and New York, respectively, on Friday, provides a sweeping list of climate change and social justice-related measures, including the refurbishing of every structure in the country with renewable energy technology and the creation of millions of federally funded jobs in the green energy sector. A frequently asked question, a document that accompanied the um, resolution referenced the complete elimination of air travel and cows who, well, do what cows do. The congresswoman has since disavowed the uh, uh, the fact sheet, which has since been proven to have been accurate, uh, which was posted on her website and suggested her political enemies uh, disseminated the document to sabotage the proposal. They're sort of now in the mode of uh, trying to save the whole thing with the back and forth. McConnell and Trump are reportedly united in their desire to tie Democrats to the socialist policy framework ahead of the 2020 elections, an endeavor that should prove uh, simple since virtually the entire 2020 Democratic presidential field endorsed the resolution as soon as it was uh, introduced to, to demonstrate that they are, in fact, woke. When confronted with the multi-billion dollar price tag most experts place on the proposal, its allies have argued that climate change is an existential threat that necessitates a national mobilization effort unseen since World War II. There's a lot of people now going back on the Green New Deal. They're like, OK, um, it's impractical or it's expensive or any number of things, says uh, Senator Cory Booker. And uh, during a speech in Mason City, Iowa, on Friday, he said, if we used to uh, govern our dreams that way, we would have never gone to the moon. Um, that's impractical. So that um, that ball in the sky, that's impractical, comparing the Green New Deal with space travel. Anyway, the Senate's going to vote on it, according to Mitch McConnell, so that everybody can um, take their place as either in favor of or against uh, the thing. Well, like a strong drink that promises a quick buzz, social media offers us instant gratification that can be hard to resist. But just as alcohol disguises the smell of chemicals, social media hides the bitter poison of identity politics, a poison that increasingly dominates the content we read. Well, this toxic cocktail, according to Emilio Cow, um, is killing our freedom to speak the truth, writing for Uh, The Heritage Foundation, he goes on to say, sadly, some of the world's most powerful companies are siding against freedom and truth. Twitter's latest move against free thought came in the form of a ban on misgendering and dead naming. This essentially means users who use pronouns and names that align with a person's biology rather than their professed gender identity will be punished. Well, this is a victory of feelings over fact. Um, big tech is enabling identity politics to, not, to dominate, rather, the virtual public square, and it's even aiding its takeover for, uh, from the real one. Take the United Kingdom. In England, police have already used tweets to investigate and arrest citizens, referring to individuals according to their biology rather than their chosen identity. 
In two separate incidents, police responded to complaints against women from men who identify as women. Police arrested Kate Scottow at home in front of her children and then held her in jail for about seven hours after transgender activist Anthony Halliday, a.k.a. Stephanie Hayden, accused her of misgendering him. Halliday, or Hayden, also seemed to suggest that transgender activists ought to uh, storm into a parish church to ask robust questions of a priest's wife who has opposed transgender uh, ideology. Police also went after a 74-year-old woman named Margaret Nelson. The reason, she posted two statements on Twitter that didn't uh, accord with transgender ideology. Gender is fashionable nonsense, and in life or in death, trans women are not women, no matter how many times you say it's so. That's what the 74-year-old said. Police went after her. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we're going to talk about the novel 1984 written by George Orwell that coined the phrase, Big Brother is Watching. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder that you can now purchase your tickets for Gospel Sing Live. That's coming up in August. You can go to kpdq.com for all the important details. It's going to be a big event celebrating 50 years of the Gospel Sing. Also coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Justin Boggy. He serves as Senior Policy Analyst in Fiscal Affairs at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about uh, the proposal for auto-continuing resolutions to avoid future government shutdowns. Good idea, bad idea, we'll talk about it. And we'll talk with uh, Scott Kadresha. He is the uh, Kadersha. He's the author of Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. We're talking about uh, an article written by... Um, Emily Cow, who has written about tech giants who are banning speech about biological sex in favor of one's preferred uh, moniker. In the novel 1984, George Orwell coined the phrase Big Brother is Watching to refer to the government. Today, he'd have to include social media companies as enforcers, something he did not envision back at the, in the day. Twitter ban, uh, Twitter's ban rather, on misgendering and deadnaming, as they call it, crosses a red line. Twitter users should be able to choose what pronouns and names they use for each other. When Twitter punishes users for misgendering and deadnaming, the company pressures us to speak untruths. Princeton University professor Robert George has warned ordinary authoritarians are content to forbid people from saying things they know or believe to be true. Totalitarians insist on forcing people to say things they know uh, are contrary to the facts. Well, social media companies embrace of identity politics has led to biased enforcement of content standards that favored transgender activists. In Canada, for example, feminist journalist Megan Murphy testified before the Canadian Senate against the notorious bill C-16, which added misgendering to the Human Rights Code and Criminal Code in May of 2017. In August of 2018, Twitter told her to delete tweets that referred to a biological man, Ryan Crute, who self-identifies as a woman named Lisa, as a man. Then, last November, Murphy tweeted several rhetorical questions. How are trans women not men? What is the difference between a man and a trans woman? She referred to transgender activist Jonathan uh, Yaniv, according to his biology. In the past, he had filed lawsuits against female beauticians who refused to give him bikini waxes. Oh, my. Twitter classified these statements from Murphy as hateful and permanently shut down her account. 
Uh, she then, bra- or Yaniv rather, then bragged that he was personally responsible for getting Murphy banned from Twitter. Murphy is now suing Twitter over the band. Well, companies like Twitter clearly see themselves as defending transgender individuals, but they're much more passive about enforcing hateful conduct policies when it comes to protecting women from transgender activists. Trans activities, or rather activists, frequently target Murphy and others by name, referring to them as trans-exclusionary radical feminists, or TERFs. A um, website called, um, get this right, TERFascular.com displays tweets like all TERFs deserve to be shot in the head. All TERFs need to cease existing. Wipe them from the earth. Now, Twitter allows that, but calling a man a woman or a woman a man somehow violates uh, their sensitivities. Well, transgender activists have also targeted Kaylee Triller, a co-founder of Hands Across the Aisle, a coalition of women opposed to transgender ideology on Facebook, by posting her home address and violently threatening her children. Ironically, Triller says, the least safe places in the history of the world are spaces where speech is censored and dissent is punished. If people are not safe to disagree, they are not safe at all. Social media companies could be protecting women from the violent, graphic, and threatening content against feminists documented as turfsealer.com. Uh, But instead, Twitter is protecting those who identify as transgender from the hateful conduct of those who simply say uh, they are were born male or female. Well, for a brief moment during the hashtag Me Too movement, it seemed that women were ascending the identity politics hierarchy. But as PayPal founder Pete Thiel predicted, when conflict comes between identity groups, the solution will be brokered in a way that most benefits the left as a coalition, not any particular group. Twitter and Facebook's double standards are proving the uh, the theory to be correct. Transgenderism is making war on feminism and feminists are losing out. Identity politics is poisonous to freedom. It divides Americans up by ethnicity, race, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, etc., and ranks us in a hierarchy based upon degrees of victimization. This is deeply out of step with America's founding, which championed the legal equality of each citizen based on the inalienable natural rights. It is also out of step with the way most Americans develop their identities from their families, religious communities, and civic groups. But as our society has become more atomized, identity politics has filled the void and offered an uh, alternative kind of social identity, albeit a toxic one. The Marxist struggle, which originally was seen as a struggle for power between economic classes, has been recast as a struggle between social identity groups. Individual guilt, virtue, and responsibility are replaced with collective guilt, virtue, and responsibility. And because this scheme treats the group as the fundamental unit of responsibility and agency, individual freedoms become irrelevant. At worst, they are seen as tools that oppressors can use to exploit the oppressed. We should not be surprised then when identities... uh, or rather incidents of identity politics, seem to reveal a totalitarian streak. Identity politics doesn't just produce a grievance culture, it produces a vengeance culture, one that never ends and can never be resolved. When students and faculty who hold unpopular views are shouted down or even physically assaulted, we are witnessing the fruit of a tree that is rotten at the core. Identity politics requires the jettisoning of America's constitutional heritage. It would ultimately replace ordered liberty with a society in which freedoms are enjoyed only by those who have earned them through victimization. Twitter, Facebook, and Apple are among 107 major companies that have endorsed federal legislation that would make misgendering a uh, a punishable offense. Named the Equality Act, this bill is anything but... 
State and local bureaucrats have already used similar laws and policies to derail the careers of people like high school teacher Peter Vlaming and Professor Nicholas Merriweather of uh, Shawnee State University because they refer to students according to biology and not gender ideology. Well, these laws uh, give government control over our freedom to speak and think according to the truth. The Equality Act would extend to all 50 states. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian writer who survived life in the Soviet gulag, once told the Nobel Prize Committee, one word of truth shall outweigh the whole world. Well, as big tech seems to restructure both our virtual and brick and mortar public square, according to the frame of identity politics, now more than ever, we must fight for the freedom to use language to speak the truth. And that is, I promise you, going to be a fight. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. We'll be talking with Justin Boggy. He serves as senior policy analyst at Heritage. We'll talk about uh, three bills that have been introduced in the U.S. Senate that would call for auto continuing resolutions. We'll also talk with uh, Scott Kadersha, author of Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. We'll be back after news and traffic. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest in his uh, latest commentary points out that there have been 21 government shutdowns since the first one in 1976. Now, what if America never had to deal with another one? Well, doesn't that sound like a great idea? He writes that some lawmakers think they have a solution automatic continuing resolutions that would keep the government open even if Congress can't pass spending bills. Well, there you have it, the solution. But is it? Well, here to talk with us about that is Justin Boggy. He serves as senior policy analyst in physical fiscal affairs at the Heritage Foundation. Hey, thank you so much for joining us, and I appreciated your uh, commentary. Uh, thanks for having me, Georgine. Good to be with you. Okay, let's talk about this automatic Continuing resolution. This sounds like the perfect solution. Congress could just simply wash their hands of the whole thing and the government would continue to be uh, funded. However, there is, say, a seedy underbelly to this plan that you write about. Let's talk about why this is a bad idea. Right. You know, the idea here is, and, and obviously coming out of a 35-day government shutdown, the longest one in history, it sounds like sounds like a great idea. Let's not ever go through this again. And the idea would be that, you know, if, if all appropriations bills aren't passed by September 30th, then we just have this mechanism that kicks in and uh, agencies keep getting their money, just basically continuing at the uh, previous year's rate. Um, sounds great. But uh, in reality, uh, one of the main problems with this is, you know, Congress is already uh, not really doing its job. They're not passing bills on time. Um, so this gives them even less incentive to do so. Uh, if, you, if you have a backstop where, uh, funding is going to continue anyways, then it makes you, uh, it gives you no reason to uh, take up these issues and to uh, uh, fight over uh, spending, uh, how money should be prioritized, those types of things. Uh, it also has the potential to actually create more spending because we have this uh, 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 type of spending known as emergency spending. Basically, Congress can uh, uh, appropriate that for any purpose. The president has some power to declare emergencies, obviously, too, and, and get Congress to, to spend money. So if you're doing that, you can basically continue the previous year's uh, funding at whatever level that was, uh, not have any fights, and then on these issues where you really want more money, you can come back and pass a separate bill for just those issues, and uh, it would be uncapped money. There would be nothing to restrain it, uh, so it really could lead to a lot of problems. And Congress, of course, would um, continue to cede power 
uh, more of its power of the purse, uh, something that they right, are yeah. responsible for. Yeah, so, so already about two-thirds of the budget is it falls outside of this annual process that we're also familiar with where you see the continuing resolutions, the, the potential for a shutdown. Um, if you if you do this, then, then the third that we that Congress still controls, you'd basically be giving up power over that. And how that money is being spent would really go to agencies and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, political appointees, bureaucrats, um, those types of, uh, of roles. Um, and so Congress is giving up this little bit of power that it really has left. Now, you point out that since the shutdown, there have been three separate bills that have been introduced in the Senate. But this isn't really new. Prior to 1980, most federal functions continue to operate during a funding lapse. That changed. But uh, a judge's uh, opinion, a judge's decision uh, prevented Congress from uh, taking up this uh, notion of auto continuing resolution uh, in the past. Right. So, so prior to the 1981 court ruling, uh, basically, when the government shut down, it, it, the, the way that the law was interpreted allowed agencies to keep spending money, even though it hadn't technically been appropriated by Congress. Obviously, the Constitution says that uh, no money can be spent unless it's in consequence of an appropriation. Um, and, and so after that point, that's when the, the modern term or what we think of as shutdowns really began. Um, we, we had a few before that time, but but it didn't really mean a whole lot. Um, you know, obviously, in the last uh, three years, we've had uh, or two or three years, we've had three shutdowns, with the most recent one being the longest in history. We had a long shutdown in, in 2013. Um, and so that's, that, that court ruling, the, the changing of the interpretation of the law by the court is what really um, put us in the situation that we're in now, where we see these extended shutdowns and people not getting paid and you know national parks and museums and things like that uh, not being open. Now, what we've been witnessing is... Um dysfunction in Congress. And you point out that Congress is supposed to pass all spending bills individually before October 1st every year. That hasn't happened in 25 years. Have we just gotten used to this dysfunction? Yeah, I think so. And that's that's really the problem. And, and that's why, you know, again, I'm not at all advocating for a shutdown. I don't I don't think that's the ideal uh, outcome of, of these spending battles. Um, but but when you're uh, if you have an auto CR in place, it doesn't fix that underlying problem. It doesn't fix the dysfunction of of the budget process. Uh, it just gives Congress another reason not to follow the budget process. So so in some ways, you know, it's a short term fix, but over the long term, uh, you're not fixing that underlying problem. So a lot better way to do that would be to take take the law that's already uh, in the books, the the 1974 Budget Act, kind of laid out this process for how Congress is supposed to adopt spending bills. And budget, um, but the enforcement measurements of those timelines and the dates that are set out in it uh, are, are just not strong enough. So if we look at things like, you know, if, if Congress misses a budget deadline, then, then maybe they shouldn't be paid. That that could give them more incentive to pass mm-hmm. bills on time. If they couldn't travel or, or some of that, uh, their staff budget was restricted, something like that. We need to be thinking of ways that, that encourage Congress to do things the way that they're already supposed to be doing it. Instead of this, you know, what I see is kind of an easy out with an auto CR where it allows them to continue not to not follow the law. Yeah, because Congress should follow the law. They should enact budget and appropriations bills on time. I know that's a, maybe a pipe dream, but that's what the law requires. <laughs> now, I mean, as- yeah, if, if, if I'm if I'm here, you know, in, in my home and, and my rent's due on the first of the month and I don't pay it, you know, no one's going to give me a, a pass on it. I'm I'm going to pay late fees or I'm, or I'm going to be evicted if I don't ever pay my rent. You know, the same thing. If you didn't pay your taxes on April 15th, I'm, I'm sure that the IRS would be looking for you 
uh, pretty quickly. So I don't know why we hold Congress to a different standard. Yeah, yeah. Now, as I mentioned, there have been some um, bills introduced, three separate bills that have introduced uh, 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 auto CR uh, as a means for Congress to punt on its budget uh, obligations. What's likely going to happen there? And will the courts once again say, no, not so fast, if they're successful? Yeah, I- I think it depends on on how they're constructed. You know, I'm, I'm certain. I think the likelihood of them passing is is probably not great. There there are people on on both sides of the aisle who who don't think this is a, a great solution. Who kind of see see things the same way that we do. Um, that this won't really solve that long term problem. And I also think that you know the further we get away from this last shutdown, maybe the momentum goes goes away a little bit. Um, so, so I don't know that it's a great possibility that it happens. It was certainly getting a lot of attention last, last week. Um, but if it does happen, you know, I, I think there's, there's still a constitutional question of, can you, uh, have this funding mechanism that's not really being voted on by Congress? Um, so it would certainly be challenged. Now, one other thing I want to ask you before we end our conversation, and that is Congress, uh, using, uh, or taking advantage of emergency spending. Now, that's so broadly defined that it can be virtually anything they want at any time. There doesn't actually have to be an emergency in place. I know we're anticipating the possibility that the president will declare an emergency. Has Congress abused this power to declare an emergency when it comes to spending, in your perspective? Uh, in, in my opinion, uh, yes. You know, the, the purpose of emergency funding is, is basically to fund something that's unexpected or uh, that needs immediate response that, that just absolutely cannot wait until the next regular uh, spending cycle comes around. Um, we, we saw this last year. There were $125 billion or so that Congress spent for uh, hurricane response and uh, other natural disasters. Um, but a lot of that money wasn't really going towards immediate hurricane response needs. It was uh, FEMA is really the primary uh, government uh, agency that responds to disasters and uh, less than half of that $125 billion that Congress appropriated last year for, for emergency spending uh, went to FEMA. You know, a lot of it went to uh, block grant programs, community development uh, block grants, the Small Business Administration. And, you know, it's, it's, it's up, to, up for debate whether those are, are worthy programs that the federal government should be engaged in in the first place. But it's really hard to make the argument that they serve an emergency need or, or an emergency purpose. Uh, you really think of things like I mentioned, like FEMA or you know, if God forbid there was some kind of conflict that broke out somewhere in the world tomorrow that we had to uh, respond to, or there was some real threat to the U.S., that that would certainly mm-hmm. qualify as an emergency. But um, when you're putting it into you know block grant programs that uh, where money's going to areas that weren't even affected by a natural disaster, then it it's becomes hard to make that argument. Yeah, yeah. Well, I so appreciate your helping to clarify. Um, the fact that this may sound like a great idea at the moment, but there are long-term uh, consequences and certainly a downside that ought to be taken into consideration. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be with you. Again, uh, my guest, Justin Boggy, he is, serves as Senior Policy Analyst in Fiscal Affairs at the Heritage Foundation on this notion of an auto-continuing resolution, or an ACR, as they call it, auto-CR, that would provide temporary relief from the perils of government shutdowns, but aren't really a long-term solution. So, something to consider. Up next, we're going to talk with Scott Kadersha. He's the author of Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the truth is divorce is a very sobering fact of life. In fact, recent Pew Research and American Psychological Association findings reveal that nearly 50 percent of married couples in America divorce. For those who remarry, the rate is even higher. Marriage pastor, conference speaker and popular blogger Scott Kadersha, he knows divorce is an ugly reality even for Christian couples. And believing that with every big problem comes an even greater opportunity, he helps couples wrestle through the critical conversations that need to be uh, had uh, and the questions that need to be answered before marriage. In his book, Ready or Not, spelled with a K, Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. Ready or Not is a compilation of essential lessons and real-life stories of more than 5,000 pre-married couples, and it's a resource that can help you think through and prepare for a marriage that will last. Well, Scott Kadersha is the Director of Marriage Ministry at Watermark Community Church, where he has served on the marriage team for more than 12 years, Through this ministry, he's helped more than 5,000 couples answer the question, ready or not. He lives in the Dallas area with his wife and four sons and joins us today by telephone to talk about his latest book, again, titled Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs, not needs to have rather, before marriage. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Georgine. Very good. It's good to be here. Thank you. Well, writing a book on marriage, anticipating some of the tough questions in the 21st century, is really uh, an essential for young people, or for that matter, anyone who wants to marry and to have a relationship that uh, that lasts. Now, you have been in marriage ministry for many, many years. How would you answer the question, what is the state of marriage in America today? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, for many couples... Uh, they don't really know what they're committing to. And so that we talk about marriage less, and fewer and fewer couples seem to be getting married every year. The ones who do get married uh, tend to have this mentality that they're in it until the happiness ends, and then they move on to the next one, or they coexist for the rest of their life as an unmarried couple. Uh, marriage isn't esteemed, maybe like it used to be, and so it's not the the same picture of marriage that maybe many couples used to have uh, back when I was growing up, or uh, it's a different view of marriage and what the world is, or our country has often taken on something that's really important to God and, and is so foundational to our society and culture. Well, it, it's important that so many young people have not had the opportunity to witness a happy marriage that uh, that lasts. Does that play a significant role in their understanding of the prospects of them succeeding? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good observation. You know, many couples, you know, man and woman grew up in in homes where mom and dad either were very unhappily married or grew up in a broken home and so never really had this, you know, solid picture of what really marriage is supposed to look like. And so they're gaining their perspective of what marriage is from social media, from television, from culture. They're defining it as you know, the culture and the world around us define it. They don't necessarily have a, a biblical worldview or picture of what really God wants to see happen in marriage. And so they're looking to everybody else, to all the wrong places. Somebody or, or something is teaching them, and they're learning it from someone or someplace, and they're really not getting the right picture of what it's intended to be. Well, I appreciate that your book, Ready or Not, allows them to have a clearer picture of what's required for a marriage to stay together and really why marry at all. Now tell us a little bit about your family, your church, and the ministry that you lead. Yes, thanks for asking that. So I'm married to Kristen for 17 and a half years. Congratulations. Uh, I met her, she was, thank you, thank you. <laughs> 
she is she was actually one of my teachers when I was in grad school, which uh, sounds scandalous, but it's not nearly <laughs> as scandalous as it really was. Uh, and so uh, we, you know, we met in Atlanta in two thousand. We met in the late nineties and got married in two thousand one, and moved to Dallas in two thousand two. And I've been part of a church in Dallas called Watermark Community Church, as you mentioned, and get to work with couples all over the spectrum. You know, pre-married, newly married, enrichment crisis. I get to work with new parents, which is a lot of fun as well when they're expecting their first child. And uh, speaking of being parents, you know, we've got four boys who are fourteen, fourteen. 12 and 10 so we've got our hands full at home with, uh, <laughs> you do. <laughs> with it, it's it's awesome it's loud and obnoxious and uh and i wouldn't have it any other way we're having a great time raising what you know really what i hope will be what will be the exact thing you just said georgina but you know we hope our four boys will grow up and have a really good picture of what marriage is supposed to look like and can be the kind of guys who will lead their homes really well in the future You begin your book in the first chapter by asking the question, as your readers uh, would, what is the point of marriage anyway? And I think you, you, uh, most of our listeners, you wouldn't be, but most of our listeners would be surprised at the range of answers that you might get to that question. But you focus their attention on what is the original purpose of marriage and why is it worth uh, sticking it out? Yeah, so the the picture of marriage, if we look at the culture, you see, you know, couples are living together. Couples will move from one relationship to another. Uh, marriage could be between a man and a man or a woman and a woman or whatever, you know, the world tells us is what people will say. Whereas, you know, marriage is really intended to be a picture of God's love for the church. It's this sacrificial covenantal relationship between one man and one woman in the way that God designed it and created it. And so you and I don't get to define it or make up what it is when it's already been established as this beautiful relationship that that God designed to show us really his deep love for us. It's a gift to us and something, frankly, that way too many of us just kind of abuse or neglect. Yeah, and I I appreciate that you begin there because that is a question that um, many people, even married people, are unable to answer. Mm -hmm. Now, as a a person who works with uh, pre-married couples, are there signs that you see with these couples that suggest that they will, in fact, succeed or... Uh, markers that suggest or uh, warning signs that say they're really not ready for marriage or marriage or they're they may not be compatible at all. Yeah, that's good. So you know, one thing would be, uh, and we've actually asked our leaders this. We have a large ministry we lead for pre-married couples, and just said, what are some common characteristics of couples who will do well in marriage? And so they're looking at the couples that they lead on the pre-married side and then watching them down the road when they're married. And one of the most common characteristics of couples who do well are those who are really teachable. And so they're humble. They, they're willing to hear where they're falling short. They're, uh, you know, their significant other can lovingly correct them or point them in a different direction or, or challenge them might be a better way to say it. Uh, a mentor couple, they let them speak into the into their life and say, you know, a mentor sees something that's not the best, that they're willing to accept uh, a challenge in that way. Uh, there are couples who will open up their lives to others, and so they'll let friendships speak in and wound them or sharpen them, and they don't choose to do this isolation lone ranger thing. And so the flip side of that would be couples who are individuals who are prideful, who isolate, who think they've got it all figured out, 
those are couples that we would say that's that's a big warning mm-hmm. sign. You're kind of signing up for that for the rest of your life, and so you want someone who's teachable and humble and will invite others in rather than isolate. Generally speaking, how do you think the church does in approaching uh, the subject of premarital counseling or preparation and then beyond the uh, the taking of the vows, walking alongside uh, couples to help them succeed? Yeah, so what, what I've heard so many times over the years is uh, is a lot of churches say that they don't do premarital counseling because couples don't want it, because they say they don't need it, they've got all their stuff together. And I, I just think that's a wrong wrong view, because when I look around me, when I see the couples who come to us for counsel, they're, you know, they're growing up in a pornified culture where they're, they've grown up looking at porn, that's all they know, they've been with multiple partners sexually, they don't have a good picture of marriage, they're living together, they're sexually active, some of them are pregnant, uh, some of them might be, you know, they might be, they might both love the Lord, but just have a really wrong view of marriage and relationships. And so uh, if we're not reaching those couples, then we're not doing the job within the church. And the church has just, frankly, I think been really weak in this area because we neglect putting good resources towards preparing couples for marriage. And then the other side of it, I'm mm-hmm. so glad you asked, most churches do nothing for newlyweds. And so they might come to the church to get married or to get premarital counseling, and then once they're married, they disappear until maybe they have their first kid. So, you know, years ago, we made the decision at our church, we're going to do everything we can to prepare them well for marriage, and then we're also going to do everything we can to help them start their marriage on the right foot as newlyweds, to build their life on the right foundation. And so we do special groups for newlyweds to help them connect with others and grow their marriage from the from the minute they say I do. That is so wise because mistakes made early on can plague a marriage for many, many years. We're talking about the book Ready or Not, and that's spelled with a K, Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. We'll continue our conversation with Scott Kadersha in just a few moments, but I do need to take a quick break, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Scott Kadersha. He is the director of marriage ministry at Watermark Community Church, where he served on the marriage team for more than 12 years. Through that ministry, he's helped more than 5,000 couples answer the question, ready or not. He lives in the Dallas area with his wife and four sons, and uh, he joins us to talk about the book, Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have before marriage. Well, let's talk about the book and how it's structured, because I think these are such important questions. And I love that in my hand is one volume that asks some of the most essential Mm -hmm. questions uh, when you're considering marriage. And I would even go so far as to say, if you're a newlywed, this is a great resource as well. So walk us through it a little bit. Yeah. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, So, you know, really looking at couples over the last, you know, 13 years, 12, 13 years, and we just decided to, or, you know, I decided to address all of the major issues and questions that come up. And so things like, what is your view of marriage? How do you communicate and resolve conflict? Uh, spiritual intimacy. And so what does it look like to build our lives together, you know, individually and then as a couple on the right foundation? Uh, that's chapter three. Chapter four is, um, uh, is what do you do with those differences? And so what if one of you has an, you know, is extroverted, the other one's introver- introverted, one of you uh, loves to, to save everything, the other one throws everything away, so how do you deal with those differences? 
and frankly, you know, every couple has, uh, you know, an unlimited number of them. And so yep. are you going to just kick them out when you're tired of them or are you going to learn how to live with each other in the right way? And then go on to talk about money and family, sex, uh, emotional intimacy, children, friendships, communication, all our uh, community, all the, all the big topics that typically come up that couples have questions about. And I think it's important to point out that the book is structured in a way it, uh, you have questions that are intended for uh, individual reflection, um, discussions that are designed to help determine marital readiness. So a couple who either goes uh, through the book as a couple or with uh, others who are mentoring them, it really gives a, paints a clear picture. This is where we stand. We may not quite be ready or we are fully prepared or these are the challenges we can anticipate and prepare for. Um, so you're not just going into this major commitment blind. That's right. Yeah, so what, what I wanted to do was give a really biblical picture of each of those topics I wanted it to be really practical. And so, uh, you know, we live in a culture that really doesn't tell us what to do or how to do it. And so I wanted to give them really clear tracks to run on, uh, you know, and hear the specific questions you, you should probably think through or talk about. And then I wanted it to be really authentic and real. And so the way I went about that is instead of making up fake scenarios with couples, I actually interviewed 12 couples I know really well, got their story, and then told their story and taught through each of their kind of personal testimonies. So we get to learn from the good decisions they make. We get to learn from the mistakes they made. And so every chapter is, is really, really authentic because I want couples to have a, a very real view of the good and the bad of marriage. Yeah. yeah. Now, how do you see this, uh, this book being used to its full potential? A couple sitting down with one another, or what, how would you recommend uh, this be applied to most uh, effect? Yeah, I think, you know, a couple reading it separately and then coming together and talking through it as boyfriend, girlfriend, or like you said, as newlyweds. And then ideally you get another couple who's further down the road, maybe a couple who's married, and you get the opportunity to to talk through it with them. And so, you know, instead of just reading about uh, communication and talking about it with one another, you actually get to bring somebody in who's walked through this in real life and and get a picture. Hey, what does this look like for you in, in, in real life? What is it? How do you communicate and resolve conflict? But books are always helpful, mm-hmm. but I think it's much more helpful if you can bring in real people to help you navigate what it really looks like. Now, at the end of your book, you have a section that I think is also essential. Uh, you answer questions like, how do we break up, stop having sex, and eight other frequently asked questions. For example, what if we've been sexually active with each other but want mm-hmm. to stop? That may be in the back of the minds of, of individuals, but, you know, to whom do you talk about that? Uh, and you offer some practical and biblical advice uh, for living up to your commitment to sexual purity as you're anticipating marriage. Yeah, so that's, you know, part of my story, Georgine, is I, I was not, I did not make good decisions on the pre-married side and, uh, you know, was sexually active and heavily involved in pornography and and so when I when I really trusted the Lord with my life, I still had all this experience and, you know, these expectations. And so I'm largely writing out of it. Not, when I ask that question is I get the struggle, mm-hmm. and, and it's very real, and uh, especially if you've been active with one another. And what I would tell that couple is just because you've done something in the past doesn't mean you're destined to repeat it in the future. And if somebody's life is truly yielded to the Lord, they're under the control of the Holy Spirit. They don't have to continue 
to give in to those desires that are frankly a good thing to have, that you want to have that desire, but you don't have to give in to it and sin uh, into the saying that, you know, we absolutely can, through through the Lord, through his leading, you know, leading and guiding in our life, we can say we're going to wait until it's actually the right time. Uh, again, not what we decide is right, but what God says is right. Another question that you asked that I think is so important. I remember before uh, my husband went to my father to ask for my hand, I had purposed in my heart, if my father said no, that either meant no, we were never to be married, or no, this wasn't the right time, but I wasn't going to move forward. But you asked, what if our friends and family don't approve of our relationship or engagement? That's an important element. It may not seem, when you're in the height of uh, you know of love, may not seem all that important, but it is a really important question, and you offer direction if you're in that situation. Yeah, that's that's such an unfortunate situation that comes up, you know, quite often. As any of us would want, if a couple is going to move towards marriage, the ideal would be that everyone would celebrate that relationship. They'd be excited about it. Parents would be willing to, you know, invite people to come to it, help pay for it, whatever it might be. And so our hope is that any couple who gets married would, would be celebrated by those around them. Uh, but if you get to that place and you want to ask, you know, you ask for the the woman's hand in marriage, you go to the father, and he says no, uh, I would look at a couple different things. Mm -hmm. One I'd want to know, is that the collective wisdom of everyone in your life? And so what do both sets of parents say, other family members, other friends? And if it's just one individual who says no, even though it is a very important one, the parent, if that goes against what the rest of your community and the rest of the world would say, I would still pay attention to parents, but I would also not let them be the only voice. And so, for instance, let's say, uh, you know, I've heard uh, I've heard couples uh, who are, you know, a, a mixed ethnicity relationship, and parents say no to that because uh, because their child is going to marry somebody who's a different ethnicity. And if they're both followers of Jesus Christ, that's that's the most important thing. And so, the color of the skin, the background, that should not be a reason why a parent would say no to a man and woman coming together in marriage. And so, you know, the parents will sometimes say no for that reason. Uh, you know, other times they might not have, the parents might not have the same view mm-hmm. of the gospel. And so that might be a reason why parents would say no. And so in those situations, I'd go to the rest of the community. And you don't want to dishonor your mother and father, but you don't have to have their permission to move forward. Well, I'm so it glad... is a really loud voice that you've got to be willing to listen to because it is your mom and dad, and they, they probably love you and want the best for you. I'm so glad you mentioned that. It just so happened that my father was a wise man. He was a follower of Jesus, so his counsel could be relied upon. And the scenario you just outlined, I was marrying someone outside my ethnicity, so it was a very similar situation. So if it's wise counsel, if it's godly counsel, it can be embraced. If if the situ- circumstances yeah. had been different, I might have had a different uh, approach. You also address what if one of the pair wants a prenuptial agreement? Should you combine your bank accounts? Um, uh, the the role of pornography that may have been mm-hmm. part of the life of the couple or the individual? Just really practical questions. And I think a lot of young people in particular might be apprehensive bringing up in any other context, yeah. but you address it in a way and uh, direct their attention uh, to what the scriptures have to say in a very practical and loving and approachable way. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Those are even even hearing you 
you know, read back that list of questions. <laughs> I'm going, man, what was I thinking taking those on? Right. Well, clearly, but, they you, but they're real questions. Yes, yeah. you're somebody who yeah. knows what the real questions are, and you care <laughs> enough about the people that you're counseling and your readers that you're going to address them, even though it makes all of us a little bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's you. a it's a great book, and again, I would recommend it. In fact, I can think of a couple of people that I know are getting married in the next uh, six to 12 months. I'm going to gift them a copy of the book. Again, Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. Uh, Scott uh, Kadersha is the author with a uh, forward by Gary Thomas, and the book is published by Baker and available in bookstores. Thank you so much for this resource, and I think it's going to be a great blessing and help to lots of people who are anticipating marriage uh, and want to want to make that commitment for life. Thank, thank you so much for having me and for the kind words, Georgine. Really, really grateful. Thanks so much for joining us. Again, Scott Kadersha, author of Ready or Not, spelled with a K, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. I know uh, Dan Rice and I went through premarital counseling. It was very useful. I felt that we were mature enough, we were ready, but there were issues that were brought up in the course of that that helped us, I think, avoid some of the major conflicts or at least anticipate some of the challenges that we hadn't even thought of. So it's a great way to go. If your church doesn't offer it, this is a great resource. It may be a resource you and your church might want to to use as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, heavy rains and snow have melted. That's caused widespread flooding all across the region. Now, we didn't get the snow here in the Portland metro area, but that doesn't mean it didn't show up in other areas. A flood warning in um, northwest Oregon, southwest Washington, expired uh, this afternoon. Two to five inches of rain had fallen over the area in the last 24 hours, according to the National Weather Service. Portions of Highway 30 in St. Helens and Scappoose were covered with water. And that's caused a real uh, issue for lots of residents in that area. There were landslides on Rocky Point Road above Highway 30. The Gaston, Scapoose, Yamhill, Carleton school districts announced that they were releasing students early to make it home around um, flooded roads. And that would take some doing. Uh, the issue popped up in a number of locations in Washington County, um, a flood uh, flooding of Rock Creek in Washington County flooded trails uh, in Orinco Park, Nature Park. Rain came cascading into uh, downtown Rainier. Um, the mayor of Rainier has uh, declared a state of emergency to secure all available funds to repair the damage there to the city with the flooding that began at about 3 a.m. this morning. Not the sort of thing you want to wake up to. There was extensive damage, public and private properties, he said in that declaration. And the northbound I-5 exit to Ramp 30 in Kalama, or rather into Kalama, was covered with water Tuesday, closed uh, afterwards, according to Washington State Patrol troopers. And early this morning, there were some issues with surface water on I-5 near um, Dyke Road and another incident at Salmon Creek. So we didn't get the snow, but we did get uh, excessive rain, and that has caused some serious issues. Now, I say we didn't get the snow because in the Portland metro area, we got a little dusting of it. That didn't last for very long, but the people in Hood River, they're doing what they can to deal with all the snow that's fallen since Sunday there. They may have gotten what we all anticipated. On Tuesday, various school districts and the uh, gorge canceled classes. People living in Hood River dug out, got ready for the potential of more snow. 
For some, the day started early as they tried to get to work safely in the snow, and we all know how that goes. Today, I got my chunky snowshoes on and some poles uh, so I don't fall down like yesterday, said one man as he snowshoed down the street at about 5 a.m. this morning. In the light of day, it's possible to see how much snow has fallen on Hood River. Too much, too much, that's for sure, says another resident. He was out shoveling his apartment's complex sidewalk for a couple of hours. And a couple um, um, hours yesterday, a couple hours the day before, he went on to say. A look around and it's easy to see why he's working so hard. Cars covered in snow. Um, some of the roads were closed altogether. Well, that's the city and the county um, slacking off a bit, he said, of his labors. Well, Hood River City officials said a crew is working around the clock in 12-hour shifts to clear Main Streets first. Then they're going to work their way to residential streets. That's typically how it goes. Uh, one public works director for the city said in his uh, last 20 years, this is the most snow Hood River has received in such a short amount of time. With that in mind, he said the crew is doing a phenomenal job. And I'm certain they're working very hard. It just takes time to get to all the places where they're needed. The snow's been coming down so hard that Kyle Bond said that for the last three nights, he had to stay at Hood River Hotel, where he also works. He said his dad is too worried about him driving in the snow and ice coming back and forth. Well, to prepare for the long day, he went to get some coffee at a nearby shop, but the place uh, was closed because of snowmageddon. So it actually did arrive. It just didn't arrive where we expected it. And uh, so our, our neighbors in Hood River are suffering through Uh, some of what we had uh, anticipated and, quite frankly, many of us were looking forward to. Well, in Arizona, you can buy a license plate that's displayed saying the words, In God We Trust. Now, I love that phrase, but it's only meaningful if you actually mean it. I mean, you can have it on your currency, you can put it in prominent places, but if it's just simply a phrase like, God bless you when someone sneezes, it has real little impact on what's actually happening uh, they're told the money in Arizona, when you choose that um, that license plate, promotes the motto, First Amendment rights and the heritage of the state and nation. Uh, what they may not have been told is the money supports Alliance Defending Freedom, and that's creating something of a controversy because they are considered by some to be a controversial group. They're based in Scottsdale, Arizona. Their mission statement is to keep the doors open for the gospel by advocating for religious liberty, the sanctity of life and marriage and family. Because of that affiliation, one Democratic lawmaker in Arizona is now proposing to get rid of the In God We Trust specialty plates altogether. Now, it doesn't matter if those who don those plates support and embrace the very things that Alliance Defending Freedom does, but it just seeing it by the Arizona lawmaker, uh, knowing that there are people in his state that embrace these core traditional principles is more than he can tolerate, and therefore he's attempting to remove them from the streets of Arizona altogether. The motto is meaningless unless we actually do trust in God. He's not impressed. Um, He knows what's going on in our heart. And it's sad to me when we fight for statements like that and they have no meaning at all uh, to those engaged in the battle. I hope we do trust in God and that that's reflected by the way we relate to one another, the way we communicate, the way we navigate through life, even through some of the treacherous and controversial territory that we find ourselves in. For me, in God, I trust. And that means you have value before him and are deserving of respect. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Steve Van Horn. He is the director of Item Ministries. Now, the name might be familiar to you. We've had him on the program 
uh, several times, but it's been a long time. So we're going to uh, invite him back to engage in conversation about the ministry they've been involved in all these years faithfully. Uh, helping to teach and train those in leadership who do not uh, do not otherwise have access uh, to training they so desperately need and want. On Thursday, we'll talk with Rita Dunaway, author of Restoring America's Soul. Now, that's an interesting phrase, America's Soul, Advancing Timeless Conservative Principles in a Wayward Culture. We'll uh, ask her to clarify what she means by America's soul. Uh, we often hear the phrase these days, that's not who we are. It's overused, it's overstated, and I'm not sure we really know what that means. It's very useful politically to advocate for whatever my priorities happen to be. We're going to talk about what it means to restore America's soul and what that might be. Do we have one? And if so, what's the the nature of that soul, we as a people? So she'll be my guest on the program on Thursday. And then on Friday, we're going to lighten up and have a bit of a a go at the lighter side of the news at the end of a long week. And uh, that will, by the way, be the day uh, that an agreement has to be agreed upon and signed off on by the president uh, to avoid a government shutdown. So a lot of uh, important decisions being made in these next couple of days leading up to Friday. We'll certainly report on what the outcome is on that and other important issues, but we'll also take a look at the lighter side of the news. So we'll look forward uh, to that. Also, I want to remind you, that Gospel Sing Live tickets are now on sale. You can go to kpdq.com. This August event is going to be a premier event, really reflecting one of the most popular and long-standing programs on KPDQ, the Gospel Sing. So if you love gospel music, uh, particularly Southern gospel music, this is for you. That's going to be held in August in Salem. And again, you can go to kpdq.com for all the important details. All right. Want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. We really appreciate it. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.